Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us, a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest in, how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein, and today is episode 162. It's titled, Is Inflation a Good Thing? I recently received an email from Justin, who is a member of Money for the Rest of Us Plus, and he asked, why does the Federal Reserve, the U.S. Central Bank, have a 2% inflation target? Why is inflation good at all? That's a perceptive question, and I hadn't really thought about it. Why do they actually do have a target? And I know why what causes inflation, which is what we'll talk about, but why do why does it, why is it allowed to happen? I guess so. Let's let's take a look at that. Well, inflation is a measure of how prices of goods and services rise over time. It's the consumer price index. Usually, there's a representative baskets of goods and services, and as inflation increases, the purchasing power of the dollar or another currency is reduced. A dollar buys less today than it did 50 years ago. So, for example, a dollar worth of goods or services in 1967 would cost $7.33 today. Or put it another way, a dollar today in terms of its purchasing power is equivalent to 14 cents in 1967. Now, that can't be good, can it? Even a period of low inflation reduces the purchasing power over time. Something bought in 2007 for $1 would cost $1.18 today due to inflation, which means a dollar today in terms of its purchasing power is equivalent to 85 cents in 2007. Now, the most recent Consumer Price Index for inflation numbers that came out, the Bureau of Labor Statistics in the U.S. puts that out every month. Other countries do the same thing except sometimes countries running hyperinflation often don't put out the statistic. Venezuela stopped putting publishing inflation statistics for a while, and then they, they recently started again, I believe. But the most recent CPI in the U.S. was 1.9%. And if we exclude food and energy, which, are, which tend to be a little more volatile, core inflation was 1.7%, which is below the target for the U.S. Federal Reserve of 2%. Now, another listener, Jay, pointed out one of the benefits of inflation. He mentioned he and his wife recently finished up their studies and training as physicians. They have $500,000 in student loan debt at a 4.5% fixed interest rates. He writes, if inflation was to occur, our salaries should rise over time, but our debt payments would stay the same. And the same thinking applies to our fixed rate mortgage. Since we won't be holding stockpiles of cash, shouldn't we be cheering for some inflation? And he, he points out that is 
the one benefit of inflation, that debt balances shrink because the purchasing power, as we're basically since it's a fixed debt amount and it gets paid over time, since the the value of the dollar is shrinking over time because due to inflation, its ability to purchase things, that means you're paying off debt with, with inflated dollars, which means your dollar goes further when you're paying off fixed rate debt. And so that is one benefit. But what causes inflation? Why, why, does, why do we have it? Inflation occurs because the amount of money in the economy, dollars, increases at a faster rate than the amount of goods and services available to purchase. So if the amount of new dollars available to buy goods and services is greater than the amount of new goods and services produced, then that will push up prices. And that makes sense. That's just sort of supply and demand. If there's a bigger supply of dollars and, and the supply is growing faster then the supply of goods and services, then those, those dollars chase and, and are paid for those goods and services, prices rise. Now, we're going to see how, how that happens because it just doesn't happen automatically. Nobody is calling down. It's not a top-down phenomena. This is a bottom-up phenomena. But first, let's look at what, why, what creates these new dollars. Now, we've talked about this in earlier episodes, episode 94, how money is created and destroyed, and most recently, episode 157, the most important question of our time. Or if you want a short summary, go to the Money for the Rest of Us YouTube channel, and there's a video on there on how money is created and destroyed, about a five-minute video. But it's done by banks. The primary activity that leads to the creation of new money is commercial bank lending. Through the magic of accounting, whenever a bank makes a new loan, it creates a new digital bank deposit, which the borrower can then spend. And the more banks lend, the more money is created, and the greater the risk that inflation will accelerate. So central banks, such as the Federal Reserve, are responsible for making sure banks don't lend too much. Central banks pay close attention to the capacity of the private sector to produce goods and services, because again, too much money, and if the capacity is constrained within the private sector, the, their ability to produce more goods and services as the amount of money is growing and growing, that is what can lead to, to inflation. So if capacity appears constrained, yet banks are accelerating their money creation, then inflation can rise faster than the central bank's target, which is 2% annual inflation rate in the case of the Federal Reserve. Now, a key measure of the private sector's ability to produce goods and services is employment, workers. As the unemployment rate declines, it becomes more difficult for employers to fill jobs needed to expand the production of goods and services. And in a tight labor market, businesses compete for new workers and try to keep existing employees happy. How do they do that? By paying higher wages. And as wages increase, businesses will often raise their prices of their products and services in order to keep existing profitability levels of their, of their companies. And rising prices, as we've seen, is what inflation is. And so it's a bottom-up phenomena as it becomes more difficult for businesses to expand their workforce or to, to attract new workers or keep their existing workers 
than wages increase. They pass on those higher costs in the terms of products, prices, and that can lead to inflation. Now, there's also a psychological aspect of it because if businesses believe their costs are going to rise, let's say the cost uh, of their commodities, they might raise prices. Or if citizens believe prices will rise, then they might want to go out and buy more stuff because they think inflation is coming or it's going to accelerate, and that can further constrain capacity to produce goods and services, which can be sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy. And so inflation can, can rise. And so it's, it's really difficult to, to manage I- inflation because it is decisions made by hundreds of thousands, of, if not millions, of businesses and individuals. Now, economists and central bankers believe there is a level of unemployment called the non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment, N-A-I-R-U. I don't know if they, they say NARU or not. In fact, in the most recent press conference that Janet Yellen, chair of the Federal Reserve, had just a few weeks ago, last week, I guess, somebody asked him about NARU or the non-accelerating, I'm calling it NARU, I don't even know if they call it that. The non that sounds good, Nehru, the non-accelerating inflation rate of employment. So this is a rate where if unemployment falls below that rate, wage pressures and inflation is expected to accelerate. Now it's unobservable. You don't we don't know exactly what the rate is. But Janet Yellen said in, in the press conference that she and the Federal Reserve Open Market Committee, which is responsible for making sure inflation stays close to their target, they believe the normal long-run rate of unemployment, which is another name for Nehru, is 4.6%. Now, currently, the unemployment rate in the U.S. is 4.3%, and Yellen mentioned that we're, we're slightly below that, but they believe that is the target, or, or that's sort of this, this Nehru rate. Now, what's unknown is if national unemployment rate falls below that Nehru level, will inflation increase gradually above the 2% target or will it spike higher? In other words, is the relationship linear or is it nonlinear? So you could just have a big jump in inflation as, as suddenly it just becomes too difficult. Because what's fascinating right now is we're not seeing wage pressures. The most recent employment report showed the average hour, hourly earnings increase over the past year was 2.5%. So slightly above the 2% inflation target, but by no means significantly accelerating or higher. And it, it's somewhat of a conundrum because we are have very, very low unemployment right now, unemployment, but you're not seeing a boost in inflation or in wage pressures, at least at this point. The primary mechanism the Federal Reserve and other central banks use to control the amount of bank lending, i.e. money creation, that leads to inflation is through adjusting interest rates. The Federal Reserve sets a target for what is known as the federal funds rate or the Fed funds rate. And last week, the, the Federal Reserve Open Market Committee made the decision that they were going to raise the policy rate or raise the, the target for this Fed funds rate. And the Fed funds rate is the overnight rate that banks 
charge each other to lend, to, to borrow reserves. Banks have reserves that are held at the Federal Reserve, and the banks can borrow from each other to, to true up the reserves, but there's this, this short-term policy rate. Now, in a normal environment, the Federal Reserve does not set longer-term rates, but as the Philadelphia Bank or the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia recently said, and I'll link to this in the show notes, an article they were they were talking about quantitative easing, but they talked about the federal funds rate. They said a lower federal funds rate reduces banks' cost, which then leads other market interest rates such as bank prime lending rates and mortgage rates to fall as well, which lowers the cost of capital for firms and households and thus stimulates borrowing and hence the economy. So if the Fed is lowering the Fed funds rate, they're trying to stimulate the economy because they don't think there's enough money creation and enough bank lending taking place. And so they they try to stimulate that. Now, generally, central banks don't explicitly control long-term rates. They try to influence long-term rates by their short-term policy rate, but they're not controlling the long-term rates. But they have the power to do that. The Japanese central bank has stated they will not allow the 10-year treasury bond yield it's not a treasury bond, I guess the 10-year government bond in Japan to go above zero. And they are going to buy treasury bonds to make sure that happens. And so they, there is the power to do that, but they typically don't do that. What they generally do, because longer-term rates are primarily made up of, or the, the one determinant of longer-term interest rates is the current short-term rate, the short-term policy rate, and market expectations of future short-term rates. So, for example, financial market participants can lend or borrow for a five-year term, or they can lend or borrow for one year and then roll over the loan a year from now and lend or borrow for another year, and so on for five years. Or they could roll over a series of three-month loans or even weekly loans And the point is, because a longer-term loan can be broken up into shorter-term loans, there is a linkage between the interest rate on longer-term loans and current shorter-term rates and what market participants expect short-term rates will be in the future. Now, the shorter-term rates we're discussing are real or inflation-adjusted rates. And and generally, the overnight Fed funds rate, there's not much day-to-day inflation. But longer-term rates, while the real rate, right, of longer, the longer-term real rate is influenced by the current short-term rate and expectations of short-term rates, but there's some additional premiums that make longer-term rates typically higher than short-term rates. And one is an inflation premium, an expectation of inflation. And the longer you go out, typically the, the a 10-year expectation for inflation will be higher than a five-year, but not always. And there's also what's known as a term premium. That's an additional yield for owning long-term bonds because if you buy, you can buy a series of short-term bonds and roll them over, or you can buy a long-term bond. There's a premium. You have to pay more. That The yield is higher. You're not paying more. You actually pay less because the yield is higher in a longer-term bonds because with a shorter-term bonds, you have more options. You could roll it over or you can take your money. Whereas a longer-term bond, you're locked in. Yes, you could sell it, but when you sell, it could be a period when rates have risen and the value of the bond has fallen. And so there's what's known as a term premium, an additional yield 
that you that is there for longer term bonds. So the point is the Fed, unless it really want to, typically doesn't explicitly control longer term rates. They try to influence the longer term rates by their short term policy rate. And then they're they're trying to adjust interest rates, influencing them because at the end of the day, they have an inflation target. And they also have a target for what they think, at least in the Federal Reserve, where full employment. They want stable prices, but not 0% inflation, which we'll see why in a minute. But they also want full employment, but they don't want the, the economy to run too hot to where unemployment falls too low to where you get rising wage pressures and inflation. When Janet Yellen was CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco, she used the story of Goldilocks and the Three Bears to illustrate what's known as the neutral federal funds rate. That's when, And she stated that monetary policy should be at neutral only when economic conditions are just right. More often than not, we don't have a Goldilocks economy. Either unemployment is too high or too low or inflation is too high or too low. And so when the Federal Reserve believes unemployment is too high or inflation too low, they can lower the federal funds rate target and try to influence longer term rates. So the amount of money creation through bank lending or if unemployment appears to be below the non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment and inflation and wage pressures are rising, then the Fed raises its policy rate. So when the Fed is lowering its policy rate, it's being accommodative. And when it's raising it, it's being restrictive. And, and very infrequently, is it right at the right spot in terms of full employment, the right amount of employment, and the right amount of inflation, the neutral rate? Before I answer the question, why do central banks allow any inflation or have inflation targets? Let me share some words from this week's sponsors. We have a brand new sponsor to our show. It's Yahoo Finance. Yahoo's been around for decades my first email outside of work was a Yahoo email address. But the financial side, I've used on occasion primarily to get data for dividend histories for particular funds or ETFs. But I was pleasantly surprised to get back on Yahoo Finance to see how it's evolved over the years. Now it's really a financial dashboard where you can get an understanding of what's going on with the markets. There are relevant articles from Bloomberg, Reuters, the Associated Press, and the Yahoo Finance team. You can look at the economic events calendar and see which data series are being released that day and what the consensus is. You can see the pulse of the markets at any time by going to Yahoo Finance. In addition, you could see all of your investments in retirement accounts in one place. With Yahoo Finance, you get a consolidated view of multiple accounts. Yahoo Finance serves as a financial hub for your retirement accounts, but also comprehensive financial news and analysis. You need to check out Yahoo Finance, particularly if you haven't been there in a while. Check it out at yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. If you've been using Mint to manage your finances, you know they shut down several months ago. Well, let me tell you about the budgeting solution, the financial tracking solution I've been using for the past number of months. It's Monarch Money. Monarch Money is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You can create custom budgets like I've done. You can set goals, collaborate with your partner. And now you can get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash David. 
What I like about Monarch is the ability to customize what I want to see. I have custom budget categories, and then I can go on to the dashboard and see where I'm above trend on some of my spending. I especially like that Monarch will never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying Monarch myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash David for your extended 30-day free trial. So we've seen that the Federal Reserve and other central banks try to control inflation, the amount of money being created in the economy through bank lending by adjusting interest rates. They adjust the short-term policy rate. They try to influence longer-term rates. And when things have heated up in terms of the economy, they, they do what's sometimes called take the punch bowl away because they raise the policy rate. Now, think about that. There's, they can raise it as high as possible. In 1979 and 1980, the Federal Reserve raised the federal funds rate to 20 percent, 20 percent. That's that's amazingly high rate. And so we need to think about it the other way, though. What if the economy is doing really poorly? Unemployment is really high inflation is low, they can't go the opposite direction. They can't go to negative 20. There's a floor. That floor is called the zero lower bound. And what it means that nominal rates can't go below zero or significantly below zero, because if you have money in the bank and rates are negative, that means the bank is charging you to keep money in the bank. And what would a rational person do? They would pull the money out of the bank and they would put it in cash because cash pays zero interest. If you just hold cash, you, it's zero is the nominal rate. But that's better than having to pay the bank to hold your money. And so that's that zero, that's that zero lower bound. Now, in practice, and this is from the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia, they write, in practice, economists and policymakers have recently been surprised to find that even market interest rates can go negative. So nominal rates likely because storing cash can be costly and risky. And so some corporations, for example, might be willing to keep their money in the bank and pay a fee to do that because it's just a pain to, to, to carry around all that physical cash. But individuals, no. And central banks, such as Japan and European central banks, they have applied negative rates in terms of their policy rate in terms of charging banks to keep money at, keep reserves at the central bank. But generally speaking, you're not going to see 5% negative nominal rates. And so you have this theoretical floor. Sometimes it's breached a little bit, but not significantly. And why is that important? Because if there's a, a floor of zero, but an unlimited upside in terms of how high the, the central banks could set the policy rate in order to, to control inflation and money creation. That means by, by if they targeted an inflation rate of zero, that means nominal rates would be close to zero. And then if the economy slowed, central banks would have little room to cut interest rates and try to stimulate econo the economy to try to stimulate lending. So instead, they have an inflation target Above that, so 2% target, maybe other banks have higher targets, other central banks. But by having an inflation target, 
that allows, so if you have real rates, ideally, so the, the Fed is now raising the Fed policy target rate. So now it's 1%. And if you have an inflation target at 2%, that means nominal rates could be 3%, 4%. So that leaves room for the Fed to cut the policy rate. But if there's not any inflation, then they can't really cut the, the, the policy rate. And then that risk deflation or falling prices. Now, why is deflation bad? Well, if inflation is low and real rates can't fall far enough to boost demand, I'm quoting from The Economist here. Let me start again. And it was an article called Why Deflation is Bad, and I'll link to it in the show notes, or if you remember my insider's guide, I've already sent you those links in the weekly email I send out, along with a summary article of that week's show, other valuable content. You can sign up for that at moneyfortherestofus.com, or if you're a U.S.-based listener, just text the word INSIDER to the number 44222. So this article, The Economist says, if inflation is low and real rates can't fall far enough to boost demand and perk up prices, demand will weaken still further. And this is the dreaded deflation trap. And by deflation trap, if you know prices are going to fall, you might not buy. You're going to wait until they fall further, which can further reduce demand and cause businesses to cut prices even more. That's a deflation trap. It's sort of a downward spiral, and that could lead businesses to, to lay off even more workers. Now, there's other problems with deflation. Recall that Jay mentioned that a benefit of inflation is his debts. His student loan debt, his $500,000 of student loan debt is going to be easier to pay off because of inflation, because if the debt stays the same or goes down over time, but he's his salary is going up because of inflation. If you have deflation, it's the opposite problem. You have prices falling and the purchasing power uh, of the dollar is actually increasing. But the, in terms of paying off debt, your debt's getting larger on a real basis. And so your debt becomes more difficult because if prices are falling, then wages could be cut. So you, actually, you could actually have less wages yet your debt balance stays the same. And so it becomes more difficult to, to pay off that debt. And then another problem is during a period of deflation, in theory, corporations, businesses should be cutting salaries of the workers. And workers do not like to have their salaries cut by any means, wages cut. And so deflation Federal central banks just do not like deflation because you can kind of get this downward spiral. It can be very, very difficult to get out of a deflationary spiral. And as a result, banks, central banks have positive inflation targets, 2%. Now, some economists argue the inflation target should be higher for the U.S. It should be 4% because that will give the Fed more room to cut interest rates should we begin to enter into a recession and inflation gets too low or unemployment gets too high. So I don't know what the right target is. The Federal Reserve is comfortable with 2%. They consider that price stability, enough inflation to allow them flexibility if the economy slows to adjust interest rates downward to be more accommodative. But we'll see. Some say it should be higher, but right now it's 2%. Now, one of the things the Federal Reserve has done and other central banks when they're close to the zero bound is quantitative easing, where they have done asset purchases and gone out and bought treasury bonds. In the case of Japan, they've bought ETFs and they've ballooned their balance sheet. 
And so the Federal Reserve has $4.5 trillion of assets in terms of treasury bonds and mortgage-backed securities on its balance sheet. And, and they've done this, in, in theory, if by, by buying these bonds out in the marketplace or from banks, that's putting downward pressure on interest rates because there's less of a supply of bonds on, in, the longer, in the longer maturities. But it's also a signaling, signaling mechanism. By doing this, they're suggesting that short-term rates are going to be long for a long period of time because we're willing to, and we're going out, we're buying bonds, and we want rates to be low. Now, I've talked about quantitative easing way back in episode 32. There's also a video on quantitative easing on the Money for the Rest of Us YouTube channel that you can watch. But what's interesting, in the most recent meeting, the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen mentioned, they are starting to reduce the size of their balance sheet. And Brian asked, could we do an episode on that at some point? And let me just talk about it briefly. What they've decided to do, so the Federal Reserve has these treasury bonds and mortgage-backed securities, and they're maturing and they're getting the principal back. And they have been reinvesting this principal back in buying more bonds. And so it's sort of an ongoing quantitative easing. They continue to buy bonds. But now they want to, to sort of reduce the size of their balance sheet so it's not so big. Now, they don't really talk about why they want to do that. They just say they want to do that because I guess the idea that Federal Reserve shouldn't be in the bond buying business forever. So what they've done, and this is from their statement, it says, we are, they're going to, for payments of principal that the Federal Reserve receives from maturing treasury securities and mortgage-backed securities, the committee anticipates that the cap, so above some cap, they're going to they're gonna reinvest some of it, but some of it they're going to actually let mature. And they also talk about the, that they will gradually Gradually reducing the Federal Reserve securities holdings will result in a, decli- a declining supply of reserve balances. So on the asset side, they had these treasury securities. They created the money out of thin air to buy these securities, and then they credited reserve, bank reserves, which is a liability of the Federal Reserve. The assets are the, the treasury bonds. The liability is the reserves. They created that, and the the banks on the other side had treasuries, which they sold to the Federal Reserve, and then they got reserves back. Now, what became, I just couldn't understand it, and I tried to find the information. Why, if the Federal Reserve is allowing its treasury bonds to mature, how does that shrink reserves? And and I couldn't find an article, and, and I stared at the Federal Reserve balance sheet, and all I could find was there's an account on the liability side, and, and I apologize, I'm probably a little technical here for 30 minutes into the show, but, but hear me out. On the liability side, there is something called a U.S. Treasury general account, and this is sort of where a lot of the, these interest payments and, and other things flow through in terms of, it's a treasury account. But think about this. The Federal Reserve doesn't hold cash. What's cash? Cash is a liability of the Federal Reserve. It's a, it, if you pull out the dollar, it says it's a Federal Reserve note. And so if you look at the Federal Reserve balance sheet, if a treasury bond matures and they get money, they don't put it as an asset because they can't. But what's money? Money is a liability of the Federal Reserve. So all I could figure out is somehow this general U.S. Treasury general account, as a bond matures, 
the asset side, the value of Treasury bonds shrinks on the asset side, and the U.S. Treasury general account would also shrink on the liability side. I don't understand how the reserve balances would shrink because on the bank's balance sheet, you would have to have some offset because the the asset is the, well, let me think about that. So the asset of the bank is the reserve. And so in order to to shrink those reserves, you need to have some liability or also shrink. And I'm not, I just don't know how it works. So if somebody out there knows how this is going to work, I can find an article, point it out. I just don't know. So what is also unknown is the impact of the Fed not reinvesting the principal payments they're receiving from these bonds. In other words, they're they're reducing the demand on longer-term bonds. And will that impact interest rates? In other words, will rates rise? We don't know. It depends on if that demand comes from somewhere else, and it depends on what investors do. Now, hopefully, because the Federal Reserve is being very specific, has caps, and it's a gradual process, there won't be a detrimental impact on interest rates. But we don't know. We're just going to have to see. This is unchartered territory, both in terms of in terms of the Fed reducing a balance sheet and unwinding quantitative easing. So to answer the original question, is inflation a good thing? I think so. A little bit of inflation seems like it would, it's helpful in the sense that it does reduce the value of debt and it gives the, the central banks a little more wiggle room to hopefully stimulate the economy in terms of the amount of lending Etc. But the economy is not this machine that be, can be controlled by central banks. And so I'm, I'm a little wary of central banks, particularly when they do untested things like quantitative easing. But at the end of the day, inflation is created by banks through lending and banks lend because people are willing to borrow. And so Federal Reserve, central banks, it's kind of a blunt tool that they use to influence interest rates and hopefully keep the economy going, be accommodative when appropriate, to be restrictive when appropriate. But at the end of the day, the economy is made up of people. It's made up of the private sector and what they believe inflation will be and what they think the economy will do. And that ultimately is what drives the economy because businesses will produce output that they think they can sell. And if they think they can't sell it, then they won't produce as much. And so that's our discussion on inflation and a really down the rabbit hole discussion on central bank balance sheets. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education only. I've not considered your specific risk profile. I've not provided investment advice, simply general education on money, investing the economy. Have a great week.